This is the Ordinary Christian Podcast, a podcast dedicated to real people like you seeking to live out your Christian faith in the ordinary aspects of everyday life. My name is Craig Thompson, and I'm your host for this podcast. I'm a husband, father, pastor, and writer. I hope that this podcast will help you to use the margins of your everyday life to live more intentionally for Jesus. Hello and welcome to episode 70 of the Ordinary Christian Podcast. Today on uh, this episode of the podcast, I have Chris Martin. Chris is an editor at BibleToLife.com. He's going to tell us a little bit about that in just a little while. He is also a content marketing editor, I believe is the title, with Moody Publishers. Um, but uh, the primary purpose I have Chris on the podcast today is to talk about his newest book called The Wolf in Their Pockets, 13 Ways the Internet Threatens the People that You Lead. Uh, that's a little bit about Chris in a professional uh, setting or professional sense. But Chris Martin, thank you for being on the podcast with us today. Could you tell us a little bit about yourself outside of the back of the book cover? Yeah. Uh, yeah, my name is Chris. I live just outside Nashville, Tennessee with my wife, Susie. We have a daughter who just turned three. Her name is Magnolia, Maggie. Um, we have a dog named Rizzo, named after the legendary Cubs first baseman, not the Muppets character or other pop culture characters, as we're often asked. Um, Greece, I think, is another place Rizzo is, is a character. But uh, yeah, so we have a dog, a daughter, a second dog, uh, Golden Doodle. Um, he's great. Uh, he's wonderful. We're both kind of you know, allergic to dogs. So having one that doesn't shed is a big deal. Um, and, uh, yeah, he's great. He's a big fluff ball and just loves tackling people in love. Um, we have yeah a daughter, Maggie, she's three. We have a second daughter coming in September, which we're excited about. Um, and yeah, uh, I, my wife and I are both originally from Fort Wayne, Indiana, which is up in Northeast Indiana. We both also went to Taylor University, which is a Christian liberal arts school there in the in the cornfields of Northeast Indiana, and uh, moved down here to Nashville right after we got married. So I'm a big Chicago Cubs fan, a big baseball fan generally, uh, but also really the only sports team I care about and follow with any regularity is the Chicago Cubs. And um, yeah, I love all kinds of things. I love reading, writing. I've been writing a blog since I was in eighth grade, uh, which is a scary thing to say, but I was writing on Live Journal back in two thousand and three or four when I was posting him to posting the links to Only MySpace. MySpace, right? Yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. So, so yeah. Um, I grew up. A little fun fact. I, I don't know if I mentioned it in this book. I certainly mentioned it in Terms of Service, which is a book I published last year. I grew up with a dad who worked from home for IBM in the early from. I was born in nineteen ninety. So, throughout the nineteen nineties and my my whole young adult life, I grew up at home. Uh, with a dad who worked from home for a, one of the biggest tech companies in the world at the time. You know, if you weren't, if you're listening and you weren't alive in the 1990s, IBM was to the 90s kind of like Apple is to the present almost. And so he was working for a huge tech company out of our dining room or event, eventually a dedicated home office. And so I was tinkering with computers and the internet far earlier than most of my peers, which sounds kind of scary, but back then nobody, I mean, a first grader didn't really know how to get in trouble on the internet back then. These days, it's maybe a little bit easier. But uh, so, yeah, this stuff is just kind of baked into me. And I've always found the internet and social media and how we connect with other people to be really fascinating. Um, and so I've spent a lot of my career doing that in a sort of Christian space and now have written two books about kind of how that affects us on a deeper level. So, yeah, that's a little bit about me. Well, before we get into the book, there's two things that really we need to talk about. Number one, how do you feel about the designated hitter? Um, number two, how do you feel about the pitch clock? Okay. Um, I mean, this really is going to impact Uh, the rest of our conversation. I want to be honest. Yeah. Yeah. So there's an orthodox way to answer this and there's, there's really heresy that you could speak. I know. I understand. And I, yeah, I met my, uh, my opinion may not be popular. So I don't like the designated hitter. Okay. So we're good. Okay. Yeah. Now I do think it's probably good for the game if you're talking about entertainment value fine but i love i love the strategy of having to work around the pitcher spot i love it and i it makes me sad um however i do kind of i i've always wished both leagues were uniform so i guess like now we have uniformity i i never really liked the lack of uniformity i thought that was weird i'm like do we have like the house and the senate like we have to have like these two different bodies that act differently like at least we could have some consistency but um but yeah, so I'm not a huge fan of designated hitter. I think the pitch clock 
is lame. Except, like, I think, I feel that similarly, where, like, I don't love the pitch clock from a, like, conceptual standpoint because you're making a complicated game to explain and understand even more complicated. However, it's fantastic for the game. We should all be clear on this. Um, I think once everybody, the fan and the player, get adapted to the pitch clock in a year or two or four, I don't know, it'll be, we'll be like, what was life like without it? And it'll be great. But there have been a few times this season already where I've been like, wait, what's happening? What? Uh, who? There's a strike now? Or what? I'm confused. Um, and so it's. I think once it becomes a little bit more normalized, everything will be okay. It's just been, it's been weird. And it's been hard to explain like my wife's like, what is about the, this pitch clock? I'm like, okay, let me explain. Okay, so who gets a strike and who gets a ball now? Why? But wait, he was like injured. Why? Anyway, so it's. I feel like the the rollout has been a little hairy, which is to be expected. But I think it'll be good in the in the long run, and I think it ultimately is a net win. Ultimately, I like the pitch clock far better than the DH, if that makes any difference. Yeah, I'm I'm a huge fan of the pitch clock. Yeah. I mean, I, I you know, and I, and I'm gonna tell you why, and then we got to move on, right? I'm I'm yeah. a big fan of the pitch clock. Because how old your daughter? She's three. She's three. The pitch clock makes it much more enjoyable for me to watch baseball with my family. Totally. Uh, my kids, you know, my younger kids, especially, you know, that, I mean, you shave 30 minutes off of a baseball game and, uh, uh, you know, the attention span for a child is so short anyway. And when a pitcher's taking 78 minutes between pitches, but anyway, Hey, Hey, we can't go there. I'm, it's okay. Yeah. We can I'm, agree I'm, to disagree. Okay. We well, I'm, I am, I'm personally in favor of the pitch clock. However, like I like it. I think it, is annoying to it's it's like it feels so it's like the you can only pick off a guy at at first three twice yeah then i like mean what? the pick, just, the pick off can, rule the pick off rule yeah. is kind of awkward i'll, I'll give yeah, you that right? yeah yeah rule, but at yeah. the same time the pick off rule is also kind of awesome like uh right you know, yeah like, sure you know um because uh it, it it gives you some some uh anyway some action in the game yeah i could i could i could give or take you know the pitch the uh the pickoff rule yeah um, but I uh, I, I mean, shift, so i was glad to see the yeah. shift go away i right? agree uh, i agree yeah um and, but, and so i just i want to set the record straight i'm in favor of the pitch clock it has just it has felt really weird and it's going to take some getting used to from like a rhythm of the game. Have aspect. you been to a live game since the pitch clock was no. instituted? Excellent. No. So we, yeah. we were at Atlanta a few weeks ago and I mean, it's just, 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 you know, it's just great. It, it really yeah. is. Uh, that, I'll that be, little... I'll be at Wrigley in June. So I'm excited to, I'm excited to experience it. Yeah. Good deal. All right. Well, let's talk about, but Hey, it's, it's actually a pretty good transition because, you know, when we start talking about baseball, we're talking about tangible things that we can touch, right? Uh, things that we can watch. You can catch a ball and all these other things. Uh, and today we're going to be talking about your book that you've recently released. Um, and I would imagine that your book, uh, 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 well, I wouldn't imagine. As a matter of fact, I know that your book is dealing with an issue that probably does a whole lot to take away from kids playing baseball, which is uh, the what you've called the wolf in their pockets, the, the phones uh, that, that go everywhere we go and the social internet, as you call it, that threatens the people that you lead chris what was it that um caused you to want to write this book uh so i've been writing about social media for a long time um the job i had right before i took the current job that i'm in was running social media at lifeway christian resources which is one of the biggest christian publishers in the world and at the time one of the largest christian retailers in the world and i oversaw social media probably in the most like tumultuous three years of lifeway's history uh the <laughs> the shutdown of the stores i was at I was at the controls of all social media when stores closed. I was at the controls of social media when we had a major presidential shift, both in the country and in our organization. And so, um, and a, a, a bunch of leaders slash authors who fell because of moral issues or or theological issues, and there was controversy every single day, it felt. Um, and so during that time, which was like roughly 20... 16 through 20, 20, 2016 through 2020 ish. Um, I, I started to think a lot more. I, I'd always been thinking about social media from like a strategic perspective. Cause I've always loved that. And like, what, what can I do on Facebook to get, to get our content out in front of more faces? Like that's always been a fun game for me of sorts of like, how can we use these tools to serve people with encouraging biblically trustworthy content as best as we can. Um, but around that time, when I was handling 
a lot of controversy, a lot of um, audience interaction that was negative. And I was starting to think about social media on a deeper level beyond how can we use this tool um, to help and to help reach people with the good news of the gospel and all the implications of that and resources to to that end. What is this medium, this form of media and technology actually doing to us? Because I was seeing all kinds of people, I mean, running the LifeWay social media handles, we were getting people cussing us out about carrying Bible versions other than the KJV. It's like, hold on, you're cussing me out about not carrying a or carrying certain versions of the Bible, I'm confused. Like, and so I was just starting to think a lot about um, how it's shifting us and how it's changing us and, and how we relate to our faith, to other people, et cetera. So I read Amusing Ourselves to Death by Neil Postman, um, which I had read Postman during college, but I had only read a couple other of his books, Technopoly and one other one. I never read Amusing Ourselves to Death, which was written in 1985 and was primarily about how television is shaping uh, culture at the time. Uh, that was the f- dominant form of media in 1985. And Postman had a lot of hard things to say about the television and how it was changing and trivializing everything. So I read that book and was like, holy cow, Neil Postman died in 2003, but this book could have been written about social media. Like there are so many chapters in Amusing Ourselves to Death. Like I think of his chapter on the telegraph, you you could replace the word telegraph with Twitter in his chapter on the telegraph. And it would map almost exactly to like life in Twitter land. And I mean, um, and, and so. Uh, I was say we're, we're just, since we're playing with Postman, uh, we, this it's, it's amazing. Neil Postman was, he, he saw the impact of his work in his life, but it has lived far larger beyond his life. I can't imagine he would have, could have even dreamed of what it would do afterward, but one of the things that's in, I think it's in his chapter on the, the, the Telegram, where he talks about the news, right? That there was really no such thing as news until the Telegram existed, because the idea that something that took place in New York had any impact on what was going on, for instance, in Los Angeles or whatever part of the country that we're talking about, opposite sides of the country or the world, that was just insane. Like, it, it, it didn't. And then all of a sudden, with the Telegram, there was this ability to transmit news, um, you know, Tombstone, Arizona. Um, if everybody's seen Tombstone, Tombstone's only known or big thing today because it was actually a writer living, a, a woman living in Tombstone that was writing about the daily events into, that's why, that's why we know so much. That's why like the movies can be made and they're incredibly historically accurate because there was a woman writing a syndicated column that was being transmitted, uh, through the telegram. Anyway, all that to say that all of a sudden the world began to believe they needed to be concerned about the things that took place on the other side of the world. And somehow those things had an immediate impact in their life today. And all we're seeing is that of course, be incredibly exacerbated with, uh, with social media. Yeah. So I, I read that book and, and realized how much of it was, was relevant to today. And, but what I was realizing at the time was that this was probably 2020, 2021. Yeah. It was right around when COVID was starting. And I was like, man, there are a lot of Christians today writing about technology, but there aren't a lot of Christians writing specifically about social media, which like, unfortunately, a lot of people I'll go on the podcast, a podcast like this and be asked a lot of questions about phone use. And I'm like, well, I didn't write a book about phone use. I wrote a book about social media. And those things are actually different. If like they are different, I'd give up social media a hundred years before I'd give up my smartphone. Cause there are so many things about my smartphone. I find useful that have nothing to do with social media. So there are a lot of Christians who I recognize back in 2020 who are writing about Christians and technology. I think of Tony Reinke. I think of Andy Crouch, guys like that. But I was like, none of these guys, I feel like there needs to be a book on Christians and social media. And so, I, and honestly, I was like, we could really use a Neil Postman who's a Christian writing about social media. And I was like, I'm just going to do my best impression of Neil Postman if he was a Christian and was writing about social media. And so I started doing that in a newsletter called Terms of Service. Um, and I've been writing the newsletter since early 2020. I wrote a book called Terms of Service in February of 2022, which was kind of meant to be a mirror, like what is social media doing to me and what do I do about that? Um, and then the out, like when I published that book, even as I was writing that book, I was hearing from pastors and church leaders, parents saying, okay, yeah, you're writing this book on what do we do about our relationship with social media? Helpful, cool, great. But I'm leading people who I see are being affected by social media way more than I even expected they were, whether it's their kids or church members. And I don't know what to do about that. So I could really use a resource that's more specifically for me as a leader. How do I lead other people who I see are being sh- 
shaped by social media. And I said, okay, I'll try to do that one as soon as I'm done with this first one. And so that's where the wolf in their pockets was kind of born. I got together with my agent and said, Hey, I've heard that this could be a need. Do you think that's a good idea? He said, yeah, I wrote up a proposal, shopped it around to some publishers and here we are. Yeah. And I mean, that's really a great transition for us because it's, uh, I told you before we got on, on air here that, uh, the way that you kick off the book is basically the way that you just described just there. And I think it's, uh, m- maybe the best, the best statement in the entire book. You just come out swinging from the beginning right here in, uh, the first page of the introduction, the very first sentence, you say, social media likely shapes the people you love and disciple more than you do. And man, I, like that's uh, that that one just hit me between the teeth because I, I know it's true, but I'm not sure anybody had ever said it to me. And uh, and then your question is, what are you going to do about it? And um, man, I, it's, it's a great hook. It's a great hook for the book. But um, how is social media shaping the people that we lead more than we do? What do you mean by that statement? Yeah. Well, at first I want to say I'm a big fan of opening lines of books. I've always been fascinated by great opening lines of books. So that's something I'm glad you took notice of that because that's something I really care about. My favorite one of all time is the beginning of the stranger by Albert Camus, where the main character says mother died today, or was it yesterday? I don't recall. And it's like, you don't remember what day your mom died. And it's like, yeah, that's kind of the whole ethos of the whole book. Um, so yeah, that was kind of intentional, not just to be shock value, but because I do think it's real social media, likely shapes the people you love and disciple more than you do. What are you going to do about it? That's why the reason I opened the book that way is because I think it's true. Um, I truly think that short of the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit's God and the Holy Spirit can't be trumped, if you will, in terms of the ability to disciple people, I think it is undeniable that social media is the most formative force of discipleship and worldview in our world today, period, at least in the Western world. Um, and I think like it's really easy for me to defend that statement and that idea with the f- with the fact that two and a half hours a day on average are spent on social media by internet users. So I, I include that stat in the book. I've seen that stat in like three or four different outlets from different studies that have been done. That's two and a half hours a day on average um, among adults. So that's not even among teenagers. Um, that's among adults. And so if you think about what do you do for two and a half hours a day other than sleep and work or go to school if you're a student, there's literally nothing you do for two and a half hours a day, like a singular activity that you do for two and a half hours a day unless you watch a three-hour movie or play three hours of video games. Like you're, you might play with your kids for three hours a day, but you're doing like a bunch of other things when you're playing, you know, you're doing this. Playing speak with for your yourself. I'm that. incredibly focused in play, right? <laughs> Well, well, sure, but you're playing with trains, then you're playing with Barbies, then you're playing with, you know, you're, you're doing a few different things as you're playing. Um, and so, so I think if you just ask, if you just, I think how we spend our time is how we spend our lives. Annie Dillard says this. Um, and if you look at how we spend our time, sleep's not really shaping our worldview. School and work certainly can shape our worldview in, in some form and fashion and shape and, and disciple us in some, in some ways. But then beyond that, social media, I mean, social media is such a massive force of discipleship. And so people are, you know, there are different stats from Lifeway or others that have come out over the years that like the the good church member is spending, you know, three or four hours a month in church or something like that. You know, they're, they're attending church three or four times a month, maybe going to a midweek service from time to time. That's your your typical active church member. Most church members aren't going to church, you know, two or three hours a week. But even if they were, let's say your best church member is going to church two to three hours a week attending programming. They're spending that much time per day, per day on social media. Um, And so that's why I think that that statement is true. And it's not really that hard to defend that social media likely shapes the people you love and disciple more than you do. And then I ask, what are you going to do about it? Because I, I think a lot of folks just don't know what they're going to do about that. And, I, you know, one of the things um, you know, about social media, and I, I appreciate the way that you talk about discipling, we generally think of our, our discipleship as being an intentional effort that we're going after, right? I'm looking to this person to be the primary discipler of my life, whether that be an author that I spend a lot of time with or a preacher that I listen to his podcast or, or, or my local pastor. I mean, for the record, you know, my greatest discipleship, you know, as a young person before I, I went into ministry myself was always going to be the, the pastor I sat under. And if you're listening to this, I, I listen, I don't want to be your discipler unless I'm your pastor. This this podcast should not be your primary form of discipleship, nor should any podcast. Um, 
but we we generally think about that in a, in a an intentional effort of seeking out those who are disciples. But but so often social media is a mindless sort of scrolling, and it's a um, a, a discipleship by by happenstance. It's kind of like uh, empty calories that you get in a in a Coke or something like that. It's I didn't think that much about it. I just drank it, and next thing I know, six Cokes later, um, three months later, I've gained eight pounds. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So um, um, one of the things you challenge in the book is to um, is to be in, intentional in the way that we engage with social media. What, what do you mean by that? Yeah, uh, exactly. Kind of to the point you just made. So um, I think there are t- two primary wrong postures. That's how I like to think of them. Like unhelpful wrong postures that we have when we approach social media. So I think one of two things is true. Either A, we approach social media in a sort of passively ignorant way. This is going to tend, I don't like to make this uh, assumption all the time, but it's going to tend to be older people. I most, I most commonly hear of this posture among this posture among older people where um, this passive ignorance, where the often phrases that accompany this are uh, social media is not just not that important. It's not real life. It doesn't really matter. We shouldn't care. Like, I'm not going to pay attention to that stuff. Forget about it. It doesn't really matter. Just don't worry about it. That's sort of a passive ignorance. We're like, I just don't want to deal with this. Don't talk to me about it. I don't have accounts there. I don't want to hear how it's changing people. It shouldn't be changing people. Therefore, I'm just going to act like it's not changing people. Um, Common perspective, again, more common among older people than younger people. This is like the the person, very well-meaning family member when when I was setting out in my first career right out of college. I got a job managing a blog and social media and the person asked, this is 2013, mind you, not 2006. In 2013, they said, hey, I, I, I really don't know if you should be getting a job in social media. I really feel like it might just be a fad and might just go away. Now, at this point, like Facebook had like a billion active users or whatever, but um, but that's that's a sort of passive ignorance perspective. I'll get to why that's unhelpful in a second, maybe. But the other end of the spectrum, much more common among the broader population, especially more common among younger folks, is uncritical embrace of social media, where every new platform comes along. We just say, yeah, I'm going to try it. Or this new feature on Instagram. Yeah, I have to give them my location data at all times. But who cares? Like, I want I want to be able to display the temperature on my Instagram story. Why wouldn't I do that? Like, we just embrace everything that comes along and we we just go along with it and we find ourselves there's a great tweet i'm going to paraphrase it that says like ah finally the work week has come to an end so i can stop looking at my medium sized screen sit down in my chair and look at my biggest screen while scrolling on my smallest screen and that just kind of like we find ourselves scrolling instagram while watching our favorite netflix show and that this is what uncritical embrace this is sort of like passive relationship with social media like you said empty calories we we basically let social media happen to us rather than happening to social media and i've said it i may have said it in the book i've at least said it in a few conversations about the book that this gets us to a point where we can let social media use us rather than use social media ourselves. Like we should be using social media if we have a relationship with it. We shouldn't be letting it use us and consume us. And so I advocate for intentional engagement, which is like, hey, you don't have to be on social media, but like if you're in a position of leadership, you're a pastor or a parent, I'm not saying go open a Facebook account. By all means, do not. But like be aware of it. Like read books like mine, read articles about social media. Be aware of how social media is impacting your children, your church members. Like, don't have your head in the sand. Social media is having too dramatic effect on Christians and likely the Christians that you lead and that you are in charge of shepherding for you to just ignore it. At the same time, if you find yourself obsessed with social media, maybe you need to be like, you know, curtailing your relationship there, like getting it under control, like putting some some bindings on yourself of like, hey, don't use it past this hour at night or use it for this amount of time per day. Give your spouse all of your login info, like you know, figure out ways to kind of reel in your relationship with social media. And I think if we can get to a, a spot of like intentional engagement where we say, okay, in this time, I'm going to scroll this for this period of time in a day. I'm not going to allow myself to just do it in bed mindlessly or while I'm watching a show, I'm going to be present where I'm at put my phone to sleep somewhere else, not in the room that I'm in, or at least not within arm's reach of the of where I'm at. That Those sorts of things, just like 
we should be owning our relationship with social media. And I think so many of us have gotten so enamored with these platforms and the media that that flows through these platforms that we just let it happen. And we're just like, ah, I'm just holding on and hoping I can figure it out. You know, well, and one of the things you, you talk about in the book is, is how we've become so addicted to entertainment. Um, and I, I don't know if you don't you don't use that, that exact uh, phrase in it, but but that that's ultimately what what um, and I, th- you know, I was just checking that that's where you you make your Neil Postman reference in there. But we've become so addicted to entertainment. You talk about how we carry the stage with us everywhere that we go. Uh, right. That was you. Right. I didn't make that up. Uh, we're, we're carrying this stage. There was a time when if you wanted to be entertained. Um, you could read a book um, or you had to go somewhere to be entertained. You had to go to a show or you had to go to a movie theater, you know, within the last 150 years or whatever, you could do that. But um, really and truly, it's it's only been within the past uh, 20 years that that you could carry your entertainment everywhere that you wanted to go. And now that entertainment is taking another level because not only do we carry the entertainment with us, but because of our uh, attachment to social media, we are the entertainers as well as the entertained. That's right. And that's where like I always cite, I think I cited it in the book. Um, It's really funny to go back to January 2007 and watch Steve Jobs unveil the iPhone. It's just like, if you haven't done that in a long time, go back and watch it. You can find it anywhere on YouTube. Um, You know, he's talking about internet communicator, iPod, phone. And he's like, this is all one device. And he like pulls out of his pocket, you know, it's this huge thing. And what's crazy is the first thing, the first thing is so funny that Steve Jobs does with the iPhone on stage at uh, the Apple convention thing where he was. He does not make a phone call. He doesn't show off the email. He doesn't show off how it accesses Facebook. The first thing he does is pulls up an episode of The Office and shows how you can watch it an episode of The Office on the iPhone and it it truly was amazing. Like nothing had ever been created like this before. But it just shows like the iPhone from its inception, from its first reveal was an entertainment device. And then yeah, beyond and- that, like you said, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say a lot of the people that are listening to this. So you're you're born in 90, right? So uh, yeah. when the first iPod or the first iPhone comes out, you're 17 years old. A lot of yep. the people listening to this. Um, honestly have never known the world even that you did. I'm t- about 10 years younger than you. So I remember I had a BlackBerry. And unless you actually owned a BlackBerry, which was, I guess, considered a, a smartphone in some way, shape, form, or fashion, you don't fully appreciate the fact that a BlackBerry was a work device and nothing else. All these other all these others were were strictly work devices. If they did anything else, it was just to entertain you for 10 minutes. And Steve Jobs comes out with a you know, revolutionary device. I mean, Initially, you may not remember this because of your age. Initially, there was pushback because it was so entertainment driven that it didn't make it. The, the, right. You're, you're doing your thumbs. The, the QWERTY keyboard wasn't there. And so the thought was that I wouldn't be able to work as efficiently from from this this touchscreen as I could from from my BlackBerry. I mean, I remember feeling that way myself. Yeah. Yeah. And that you're exactly right. That was a huge like it doesn't even come with a stylus as if that was a bad thing. And it was it was yeah really funny. I actually funny thing at the time I was a sophomore in high school. Maybe, yeah, I was a sophomore in high school and I had a tech column in my high school newspaper and I wrote a column about the reveal of the iPhone and how it was going to change everything. And it's just really funny. Um, but yeah, so like but beyond that, like you said, to this, that, that's more on the technology on the phone bit. But then with with social media, w- the stage jumps into our pockets and we we all have the ability not to just consume entertainment, but become entertainers ourselves. And I think there's tremendous good to that. Don't hear me like saying that that's bad. I mean, gosh, I've made a significant writing career by writing on the internet and being a creator myself. You know, it's not a lot of people like to like to make fun of internet influencers or creators or whatever. And like, they're all like, everybody's trying to be the Kardashians or something like that. It doesn't have to be that way. Like, I think the the fact that we all have the ability to create content for other people on the internet is one of the things that makes the internet magical. I think it's wonderful. At the same time, we can we have to recognize, and this goes back to the sort of intentional engagement versus passive engagement bit. We have to realize how quickly that can be become all consuming, and how quickly it can derail everything if we don't put up some like intentional guardrails to protect us from becoming consumed by being a creator and being an entertainer. There's like a a lot of people today are, 
you know, like to make fun of kids because all these surveys are coming back saying that kids want to be influencers more than they want to be baseball players or, or firefighters or whatever else. I'm like, okay, I understand. Like, yeah, it's more honorable to be a firefighter than a YouTuber, but at the same time, you can't blame them. Like they look at someone like Mr. Beast or other YouTubers and it's like, you mean I get to have fun and become one of the richest people in the world? Like, yeah, it sounds like a blast. I mean, like that's part of the reason I wanted to be a baseball player. I was like, you mean I get to play baseball for the rest of my life and I make millions of dollars. I mean, come on. Um, so I don't, I don't think it's all bad, but I do think that it, a lot of us underestimate how all consuming it can be and how, how narcissistic it can quickly become when we start to see ourselves as entertainers and sort of the center of not only our world, but see ourselves as the center of everyone else's world. Yeah. Yeah. And I, th I think that, that there's an interesting thing that happens that when we're, when we're accessing the internet um, so regularly and these social media platforms, everything else so regularly from our phone, we're doing it from an enclosed or a private space uh, that we're doing it from our safe space and forgetting like and, and because we're we're in a safe physical space, I think it 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 allows us or encourages us sometimes to do things on the internet that that really are not wise or safe or smart, but we're doing it because we bought this false idea of safety based upon the, the proximity of, of the place where we are, you know, without a full appreciation for the fact that the things I'm doing here have a reach beyond uh, my my present moment, but also the things that are coming into this space, right? The things that are coming into this space actually have the ability to to have an to impact me in a negative sense, even to harm me. Uh, even though I'm I'm in the safe confines of my my study or my home or my bedroom or wherever it might be, like there's still danger that can come in and and do me harm in that environment. That's right, and I think I think, and I'm always careful to say this, like I'm. Uh, because I've written two books about social media now that largely highlight the threatening aspects and negative effects of social media. I always want to be careful and say like, I'm not anti, every, you, if you're listening, you should hear me saying I'm not, I'm not, I'm not like anti-social media. What I, what I, the reason I'm always on podcasts or radio shows or in books writing about our con the concerns that we ought to be having is because I feel like Many of us in our sort of enchantment with everything we love about social media and the internet, we just either willfully or unintentionally are blind to the to the threats and concerns. Like I've I've joked before, like nobody needs to write a book about all the great things about the internet because we're all pretty aware of the great things. Like we get to stream cool TV shows or watch, you know, sports that we couldn't usually have access to in the previous days, or we can connect with friends and family around the world. Or, you know, there's a lot of cool things that come with it. And nobody has to really be convinced of a lot of the cool things. But I think a lot of us overlook the more threatening and and concerning aspects, like um, like we we just let our guard down. And we kind of fall in love. We get these like butterflies in our stomach, if you will, of like, uh, oh, man, I just love Facebook so much. Or I just love connecting with my friends on Instagram or whatever. And and some of the shine is is wearing away. I think I've noticed, especially since COVID, when it's funny, like when we when we came to rely on these tools as our sort of primary outlet of social interaction, when a lot of us were stuck at home or, or whatever, I think we started the cracks in them started to reveal themselves. Like we started to become more aware of how foundationally broken these tools are and how they, they can't ever really provide what we want them to. And so I think if you could ever say there's something good to come out of COVID, that's something from my seat as I conversations I have always had about social media. And I've, I've always felt like I'm trying to convince people of the negative aspects of social media but around the end of the hardcore COVID lockdown stuff in late 2020, early 2021, I started to notice, oh man, I don't feel like I'm just talking to a brick wall anymore. Like it, it really seems like other people are starting to recognize some of the costs of being online and forming social relationships online so much. And, and I just want us to, again, I'm not one to say, delete all your accounts. It's all bad. But I am one to say, I think it's costing us more than we realize and we should be attuned to all of that. And I'll respond to that in two ways. Uh, first, I would say I, I'm, I'm with you. I'm, I'm beginning, and probably I'm in a place where I'm beginning. I'm, I'm the opposite of you. Like I'm a lot more inclined to say, "Hey, delete everything." Um, I'm beginning to see a little bit more of the value. And and uh, now I will tell you, if you're a parent listening to this, you're 14 year old, you're 13 year old. They they you need to be. They they really don't need it. Um, your 14 year old girls, you got to be super careful. Um, 
uh, Facebook, Meta, they, they know what they're doing to your girls. And if you don't know, you need to look it up, but you, you just need to be careful. Um, you know, your, your, your 10 year old does not need social media. They don't need TikTok. Um, I mean, and Chris is shaking his head. You don't know these 10 year olds yet, I guess. Uh, um, there's a lot of them They they don't need that. And not only they don't need it, you, you need to, you, you, if you want to do that with them and you want to have that account and y'all have something you do together, sure. Um, but just be careful. Um, I'm going to, uh, I'm a matter of fact, but, but so, uh, however, I, I am beginning to see, some of the value of social media, but for me, that value is being discovered, I, I think, in trying to recover what at least, um, you know, 20 plus years ago, Facebook initially set out as, or some of these other, like, you know, that that Facebook wasn't primarily a chat room, for those of you who can remember what that was, as much as it was a way to connect online with people that you were trying to build relationships offline, you know, or or to maintain online connections with those people that you had some kind of face-to-face connection with. And so um, I'm seeing some value in, in that that I haven't seen before. Um, something like, um, you know, uh, exercise groups or, or things like that, that, that can ex- exist to create accountability. Um, so, so for me, I'm, I'm at least beginning to come around to the realization that there's some value, um, that, that's, that, that exists. Um, I, I, but I also agree, like it's, it's a, it's a shadow of the, of the best things in the world. I'm, my, my next podcast interview is actually with, uh, David Sachs, who wrote, um, uh, the revenge of analog. We're going to talk about his most recent book, the future is analog. And, um, he taught, he wrote it coming out of the pandemic, you know, kind of wrote it in the middle of the pandemic and about how this, this digital world, this digital utopia hasn't worked out for us. And if you had to do a birthday party for your kid via zoom, then you understand that it was terrible. You know, there were no high fives and, and, uh, hugs and all the other things. It was just like grandma staring at him, blowing out candles on a birthday cake. You're like, man, this is absolutely atrocious. So, um, uh, but, uh, but anyway, that, that's, a, that's enough of, of me as, as you continue to work through the book and sort of the entertainment aspects of it. Um, you also point out that the internet doesn't really see who we really are. It sees the picture that we want others to see. So I'm looking at you right now and your office looks awesome. You know, I, I can see the Cubs Jersey hanging there and, and Wrigley field in the back and the, the, um, the, the stadium chairs, but I actually have absolutely no idea what you're staring at. I don't know if you're staring at a wall or if on the other side of that, it's absolute chaos. And I think that's something that social media allows us to do. You know, I, I straightened up the bookshelf behind me before we got on this podcast but if I turn the camera around, you'll see I've got pillows stacked on my desk to help with the audio, and it looks absolutely horrendous, right? <laughs> That's funny. Uh, yeah, yeah, I totally get it. And, and I think um, social media does allow us to curate ourselves. And what I think, you know, I think there's so many ways this this part of the conversation could go, because I, I think we also need to recognize that we, we curate ourselves offline, too. I've had a lot of conversations over the last few years about you know, is X, Y, is X social media platform real life? Or is, you know, is Twitter real life? Or is that real life? And it's like, well, is internet, is what we say and do online real life? There are two ways to answer that question. One is no, meaning like kind of what you're just alluding to. What happens online can be so meticulously edited and curated and polished that it's probably not a correct representation of who we actually are. Like people share the most uh, amazing or worst parts of their lives, you know, looking for sympathy or, or looking to show off. Um, they, most of us aren't sharing like our most mundane moments, at least these days. That was one of the things that was more fun about the early days of social media is it feels like things were used to be allowed to be more mundane. Um, at the same time. So that's one way I would say like, no, social media is not real life. It's not like a real representation of, of life, but at the same time, I think of I think a lot of times, especially on a platform like Twitter or even Facebook, who we are online can sometimes be a more real representation of who we actually are than who we are offline. Like um, someone may be a huge jerk online under their real name, but then in person, they're like, oh, yeah, hey, how's it going? Like they're like totally fine. And it's because they're maybe a coward. They're not afraid to be a jerk to someone's face or they want to maintain their offline relationships in their local church, but then go slander their pastor online or whatever. I mean, this kind of stuff happens. And and I think who we are online can sometimes be a sort of like 
you you can kind of reveal who you are when you think nobody's watching, even though you might be trying to actually get people to watch. It's this weird, this weird thing. But with regard to something like Instagram, gosh, I mean, I've read so many stories over the years of like, you know, teenager goes on vacation, takes 300 pictures at the beach, post them throughout the year to make it look like they're effectively on vacation all the time. You know, yeah. like that kind of thing happens. Seriously. I mean, Drake has a song about this kind of thing. Like this, this kind of thing happens where like you take pictures while you're on vacation and then post them throughout the year, like seed them throughout the year to make it seem like you're always like traveling the world and that your life is actually more interesting than it is. I mean, this is a thing. Um, and so, so yeah, um, I think, I think we need to be aware of how social media, like, this is something I write about a lot, and it's the reason the subtitle and the of of the book is 13 Ways the Social Internet Threatens the People You Lead and Not Can Social Media." Can you explain the difference there? Yeah, I appreciate you bringing that up. Yeah, yeah. Um, and this is like I'm sure everybody from my editor to my book bargainer to everybody else wishes I would have just made it social media because it's a more common term. But I'm I'm really adamant about the fact that social media and the social internet are different things, and really this is rooted in Postman again. So. Postman, I don't think he says this in amusing his ourselves to death, but he has said it in an interview that I've watched that we need to recognize the difference between technology and media. Technology and media are different. If you just think of the TV, the TV, the actual box that would sit on your on your uh, your, your dresser looking thing, you know, especially the old school ones, it was the dresser. Um, the TV is the technology like it's the wires and the screen and the colors and it plugs into the wall. That's the technology, but the sitcom you're watching, the reality TV show you're watching, the sports event, that's the, that's the media. And really media at its core is taking a piece of technology and creating culture with it. That's what media is. It's, it's creating culture through technology. Now bring that to the internet, the social internet is Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Snapchat, the 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 TVs, if you will, like the the technologies, the ones and zeros that make up the algorithms that decide what content we see on our feeds. That's the technology. Social media is the funny cat video, is the Facebook message from your aunt, is the DM from your buddy across the country, is that Facebook group of of exercise buddies. That's that's the media. That's the content, the culture that's created through the technology of the social internet. So much attention, rightfully so, but so much of our attention is devoted to social media. Like watch this, don't watch that. Listen to this, don't listen to that. All of those conversations are good. We should be careful about what our eyes see and our ears hear. Yes and amen. But I think one of the most overlooked aspects of our entire relationship with the internet is how much, for instance, the Facebook algorithm re-engineers how we think about life and re-engineers how we think about what matters and what doesn't matter. We've come to say, like, if something goes viral, it must be it must be important or it must be valuable just because three million people watch that video instead of that this other video. And so we've we've let our brains. I'm not a brain scientist, but I know enough to be dangerous in that, like. We've let our brains be rewired such that we have started to prioritize what the algorithms that create our feeds prioritize, which is controversy, polarization, anger, conflict in general, and things like that. Well, you're, you're talking about Postman a lot. We can go to Marshall McLuhan, right? The, the medium is the yeah. message was his, and that's, that's sort of Postman right. plays in those same worlds. Right. And, you know, just to push back on you just a little bit here, when we're trying to really split hairs between the social internet and social media, well, the reality is that the medium becomes the message and the medium, especially probably more than than Postman or McLuhan could have ever appreciated. The medium of the social Internet is the message because these these providers are having they, they have absolute control over what is being what is being pushed. You know, I mean, I, I don't think that that's really being shown any anywhere any more than in Twitter right now. Um, you know, you've got you've got Elon Musk taking over and then putting all this stuff out there saying what they were doing, but of course he's he's doing some similar things his own self, pushing a different agenda. I mean, we the the medium becomes the message there because the medium is prioritizing, like you said, division, anger, um, and, and all these other things. And as long as it's stoking those fires, the only thing we're doing, man, we're we're setting the world on fire. And um, you know, yeah. and, and we're we're certainly the medium itself is not promoting anything that is 
that that fits within the fruit of the spirit. Um, the, the the people there may be people that are promoting that, but it's very challenging. It's very challenging to even get those messages to go to go viral, for instance, because those messages so often do not find their way into the algorithm that that ultimately is making money for um, Meta or whomever it is that's um, you know right. the Chinese government or who, whoever is yeah. profiting from these right. things, right? Yeah, right. Yeah, and so I think I think what's important for us to remember is that social media platforms don't care about us. They don't care about the nature of our souls. They don't care about the right. formation of our minds. They care about harvesting our attention and they'll do literally whatever it takes to do that. Like a right. lot of people like to make a bunch of noise about the various political affiliations or or slants or bents of various platforms. And I think it's just like so such a per, such a perfect picture of how much we just miss the mark in in our priorities of today. Like I care so much less about the political affiliations of Facebook and care so much more about the fact that it's making us fight about things in general. Like, um, and so anyway, I think what we need to recognize is that social media platforms are literally designed like their financial model is to deliver us more deeply into our desires, not deliver us from our desires. And even well, if those of us who are Christians recognize fleshly that, like, yeah, yeah, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Is like, yeah, I'm a I'm a Christian being always transformed and changed by the Holy Spirit. And hopefully my desires are becoming more in line with the gospel and more in line with the truth that I know. But I cer certainly have sinful desires that are not of God and should be squashed, not indulged. But social media is not interested in that. They want to take our most fleshly desires and deliver us more deeply into them. They say, oh, you like that? Let us give you more of this. And they they know what's interesting to people. and they, And then they deliver us more deeply into those things. And that's that's sometimes more harmful than good, often more harmful. Than and good. I mean, I, I can speak to this personally. I, I you know, I, I like to pick up heavy things and put them down. I lift weights for fun and, and exercise and fitness. And so what that means is that a lot of my social media, my social media stuff is wrapped up around like Jesus, you know, preachers, <laughs> funny cat videos, not really, but kind of, um, you know, lifting weights and, 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 and like guns, like that's, it's like the most, you yep. know, typical boring American male that you could imagine. But I also recognize that because for instance, I'm following a lot of accounts that are fitness inspired. It's amazing um, how, how quickly those accounts feed me, not just fitness, fitness tips, but uh, you know, women with fewer and fewer clothes on, right. As, as we're That's moving right. in those yeah. directions and, you know, I mean, CNN I actually did a pretty good expose. I don't know if you still, I don't know, is that a word you can still, can you do expose anymore? I don't know. Um, I don't know. Yeah. But they, I don't know if you saw this. It was uh, maybe like, maybe just last week. Um, they spent a couple of, uh, a couple of weeks imitating uh, a teenage girl on TikTok. So they started their yeah. own account. Do you see this? They started their own account yeah. on TikTok um, and uh, just um, pretended to be a 14 year old girl. And, it was amazing how quickly the feed, the recommended suggestions. I, I don't, I don't do TikTok, um, so you can help me use the right words. But how quickly it pushed them towards, you know, anorexia type behaviors, eating disorders. Right? It was wild. Yeah, yeah, that's the thing, and that, that's I was just going to say before you use that example. A few folks, news organizations, largely have done experiments like that, not just on TikTok, but on a handful of platforms over the years. And it's like you don't you could create a new account today, and these platforms are going to serve you. Yeah, like like women and not many clothes. Like they're going to serve you content. It'd be I wouldn't be surprised. I don't know this, so I, I can't say that I know this for sure. But I wouldn't be surprised that they have a sort of like, you know, list of the seven deadly sins kind of thing of like, let's just serve them. They'll, they're going to fall in. They're going to fall in love with one of these kinds of content. Right. Like people eating a bunch of food, people not in much clothing, people who are, you know, doing like showing off how much money they have. Like, I, I would not be surprised if they sort of categorize content in that way. And when you set up an account for the first time and they don't really know anything about you they serve you a variety of that kind of content and see which one kind of hooks you. And then they just serve you more of that. Um, these are all what are called recommendation engines. And they are just literally code that's designed to figure out what you like and figure out what people like you like and deliver you more of that content. And, and again, like 
it doesn't mean you don't have to go searching for bad content to get rolling down that hill. They they'll just serve it to you as soon as you get an account, and then you'll just kind of start rolling down the hill without even intending to. Yeah, I mean, it's like let's you you're just I don't know you you search for the 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 presidential campaign for 2024, and yeah, you know you look at the Republican candidates, and they know at that point they they've got they they've got enough information to begin little nudges getting you into a direction. Yep. And if they can get you to a place where they can serve you enough stuff that makes you angry, the angrier you get, the more you click and the more you click, the more more money, the more ad money they're making. Um, That's right. So, um, all right. So we, we talked about all the trashy things about the social internet. Okay. And, and all the dangerous things. And you said that it's not all bad, but you really haven't given us a great way to utilize it. So we're supposed to be thinking critically. We recognize that it is shaping our people more than I am. All right. I'm, I'm, I'm preaching, I'm preaching for, you know, let's just, let's just assume it's only 35 minutes on a Sunday. Um, but I'm preaching on a Sunday and let's just assume that the people in my church are amazing. And so they're showing up They're They're hearing me preach. They're participating in worship for an hour and 10 minutes on Sunday mornings. They're attending their life groups for an hour a week. Uh, and then they're, 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 they're listening to this podcast and maybe they're even doing a midweek service, right? So they're getting, let's just say they're getting four hours of content from, from me and from Malvern Hill Baptist church. Uh, that's still two days worth of social media, right? So if it's not all bad, is there anything that we can do to thoughtfully engage with it and use it for good? Yeah, totally. I think, first of all, I just want to say out of the gate, I don't think it's wrong to use social media for totally frivolous, non-eternal things. Like I'm looking at my second monitor here right now as we as we hang out on the podcast and I've got my uh, a Twitter account pulled up with a bunch of different lists that you can make in Twitter. And I've got one with like tech and social media journalists who are, who are or, or columnists who are writing about things. And I've got one for financial economic news. I've got one for that has a bunch of funny stuff in it. I've got one for sports news and I'll just, you know, occasionally look at like, what are some funny things? What, what's going on in the world of sports today? I think, frankly, I think social media is best for lighthearted, frivolous content. Uh, goofy videos, sports world stuff, whatever. I think I think that's when social media shines. Um, is, is like when it when it's being as lighthearted and fun as possible. Um, but I think beyond that, as a Christian and as somebody who works like I work for a Christian organization that publishes books, like we're we're trying in the in the work I do every day, trying to use social media for good. In that, like we recognize that a lot of the most uh, searched for resources on the internet are published uh, regarding faith matters of faith are published by um, faith groups that we would say are heretical or just plainly not Christian. And so like we're trying to use social media and the internet more broadly to create Christian content, to meet people where they are, because a lot of people, frankly, I mean, you probably get this as a pastor. They have a question about like, can I lose my salvation? They're more likely to Google that than come up to you after a Sunday service and ask you, because if they're anything like me, when I was thinking that when I was like in high school, I'd be too embarrassed to ask my pastor that because I'm like, I feel like I should know this. So but, I'm just going to Google it. They're going to Google it. Some of them, back to your point of they're who they really are on social media, some of them, and this just blows my mind because I don't think this way, right? They're jumping on to, if they're, if they're above 45, they're jumping on to Facebook. And if they're under 45, yeah. they're jumping somewhere else. And they're asking, they're asking their social media friends that question. Right. And it just absolutely right. blows my mind that it's like, hey, you know, let me, let me go to the experts on, on TikTok and ask them if I can lose my salvation, you know? Yeah. <laughs> what are you doing? Well, and I think, I think what it comes like, the, I think one of the things that's really appealing about the internet, especially if they're doing that sort of anonymously, um, that would be the case on maybe like a TikTok, Facebook, you're going to probably be doing it under your own name. But um, I think one of the things that's so appealing about the internet is that it allows you shadows of affection and intimacy and connection with, without, the risk of vulnerability. Great word. And so yeah. like, Keller Keller talks about in Meaning of Marriage that like one of the, I'm paraphrasing probably poorly, that one of the scariest things about marriage is that, or one of the scariest and coolest things about marriage is that you can be totally vulnerable with someone and yet they still love you. Like mm-hmm. you yeah. can be fully, fully known and and truly loved. Yeah. But I think, I think a lot of us, especially among young people, I, I serve, I've been serving in student ministry since I was a high schooler and currently serve in the student ministry at my church. So I'm hanging out with high schoolers a lot, middle schoolers too. Um, 
And I think especially among young people, it's always kind of been this way, but I feel like it's only gotten worse over the years that there's this increasing desire to be known and loved, but a decreasing willingness to be vulnerable. And and the, the internet, the internet provides feelings of affection from other people without having you without you having to feel the feel the pressure to pay the cost of being vulnerable with them. Yeah. And Chris, I mean, just to, to talk about our young people just a little bit, I've, I've said this over and over of late. Uh, I do believe that this is the most negatively impact or let's just say neglected. This is the toughest group of kids I've ever worked with. I'm like, I said, I'm about 10 years older than you. Um, I was in student ministry before getting pastor. I'm still very active in our student ministry here and, and among young people under 25, uh, I continue to be absolutely amazed at how many, how many adults have let these kids down. And I'm, I'm using that term yeah. kid again, un, loosely under 25, how many people have let them down, how scary vulnerability is. I, I was with a, a young lady. If she listens to this, she's going to shoot me. Um, I had a conversation with a young lady not too long ago and she, she's had a tough life, right? Everybody that was supposed to, to, to be there for her was not there for her. Um, and, uh, she's found some people that are willing to be there for her in a way that's been, un, you know, she's never had before. And it was pretty awesome because one of the things she said about, about these folks that love her so, so well is these people continue to let me back in. They continue to be here even when I mess up. And, you know, I, I think people are running to the internet for that anonymity that they don't have to know all my mess ups and they're still willing to let me in. But, it, but it's a shadow because the internet can't hug you. Right. It's That's right. It's, it's a shadow because, you know, for all the availability of pornography and, and, you know, and of, of internet connectedness, people are still getting married. You know, you can meet somebody in a chat room or you can meet somebody on social media. You can meet somebody even through a Twitch account or whatever account you want to use, but people are still pursuing, you know, flesh, flesh on flesh relationships and they're real pursuing real marriages because it doesn't matter how well I know you on online. I still can't hug you. I can't give you a high five. I can't, I can't touch your hands or your face. And, and um, so I appreciate you just that shadow, but also I recognize that in this younger generation, they've just been let down by so many people They're They've not had healthy relationships at all. And even the shadow fools them. I mean, they're, they're, these, this is Plato's cave, right? They're, they're seeing yeah. the shadows and the shadows are better than the life that they've lived. Right. I mean, is that, are you, are you seeing that with, with young people right now? Totally. Yeah. Look, I, it's, it's, this is where I mean the sort of hidden costs that we like to ignore or just don't even realize that we're paying as we engage online in varying ways. Like it's so much, it's so easy to settle for the shadow if all you've ever known outside of that is sort of painful because mm-hmm. it's like, well, at least the shadow is not going to hurt me. Like, yeah, yeah it's yeah. the shadow. And, and even if eventually I do recognize the shadow, well, at least it's not going to hurt me. And I think, but, but I think the sort of cost comes down the road where eventually you're just like, okay, yeah, this is empty. This is, this is why we have an epidemic of, of loneliness mm-hmm. or of anxiety and depression among teenagers, especially teenage girls. Jonathan Haidt is, wonderful at this is at explaining why he believes social media is at the root of that and it's because the ways the ways that teenage girls resolve conflict are exacerbated on social media mm-hmm. and they kind of feel the negative effects of this shallow intimacy more than even young men do i think there's reason to believe that and so so yeah i think but but that cost sometimes doesn't come there's like a lag to that like like you you're content with the shadows until one day you're not and then you're kind of at this crisis point until you're, like, you're 30 oh, years old what do i do and you look around and i'm all exactly. alone yeah and That's so right. That's exactly. so let's 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 we keep going to the negative what are the positives now uh, tell me yeah. if i'm wrong tell me if i'm wrong I, yeah i, I think i think right. that one of the things and i think you you hit it this in the book um, and I think that the people listening, one of the things that social media can be good for, we, we can share the gospel of social media, right? We can meet people where totally. they are. Sure. Right. One of the sure. other things that we, I would, to- I, I would be hesitant. Let me say, let me say, I would be hesitant all about sharing the gospel, sharing the good news. I like for me as somebody who does ministry, I, I'm not going to share the gospel online and be like, I led somebody to Christ today until I like maybe see that, you know? And so I always let want me to be finish, careful man. to be I was like, headed there. Hold on. Sorry, go ahead. I'm sorry. Right, I'm sorry. Right, right. I'm sorry. So I'm we sorry. can meet people where they are, but 
our our goals for social media should always be to move from social media to real life, right? Like that, like from online life to real life. Whether with missionally, for instance, you know, if we're going to reach people online, we've got to be pushing them into local churches, right? Into actual relationships with people. So, you know, if social media social media allows me and you to maybe be connected. But, um, you know, if that if that connection serves for me to benefit from some of the good content that you're pushing out or whatever, that's fantastic. But my primary purpose for social media can't be to fulfill my need for relationships, because ultimately I'm, I'm getting a sugary drink, which is making me fat, but it's not doing anything to make my life better. Yeah, I think social media is wonderful for supplementing relationship, not um, replacing relationship. So like I have, I have a number of friends who I've lived among over the last, you know, since I've been married in the last 10 years who I've lived among in physical, in flesh, who I could hug and hang out with and play basketball with or whatever, um, that have moved away. Um, and social media provides a great outlet. I mean, I text them, but I also can keep up with them and their families through social media. I think social media is a great supplement to relationship uh, not replacement for relationship. And that might sound like, well, duh, but, but a lot of us, a lot of us maybe say, well, duh, but then don't act like that. And so, so I think it's good. Um, social media is a wonderful tool for maintaining relationship for, with people who are far away. Um, even if it's just sharing goofy YouTube videos or highlights from the basketball game last night on Twitter or whatever. Um, I just like, with my friends who are, who have moved away and I now maintain my relationship with them through social media and or texting. Some of my best friends in the world are those people. But I would say the relationships I have with the guys who are in my community group and come over every Tuesday are stronger than those relationships that I maintain through the internet are. And that's frankly just kind of how it should be. But I think if we don't recognize that difference, we can get to a rough spot pretty quickly. Yeah. And I mean, I, I, you know, I, I still maintain some social media interactions with guys I went to college with. Um, yeah. But I accidentally, like just by happenstance, ran into one of those guys at the Coke Museum in Atlanta, the world of Coke a few weeks ago. Had no idea. Like I'm there with my family and my wife hit me. She said, Hey, is that is that Danny? And I look up and there he stands. Well, guess what? All of the things I can see about him online, none of those were nearly as great as me getting to hug his neck and to meet his daughter. Right. You know, and I, I haven't seen that guy in 20 years, not face to face. And nothing, nothing about my my Facebook interaction. Uh, with him was as great as being able to hug his neck and to meet his daughter and introduce him to my family, you know, and to be able yeah. to say to my kids, Hey, this is a guy that, that I've known longer than y'all been alive. You know, we're not great friends anymore. Yeah. We're not close anymore, but, but uh, all those things yeah. are great. Chris, um, uh, you, you kind of finished the book talking about anxiety uh, grappling with that, that social media can kind of create some of those things. Um, you, you talk about conspiracy theories. Uh, so I, I'm, I'm saying all this because I think for folks that are interested in the book, you need to know that stuff's there. He, he does that well. But but you finish out redirecting worship and just talking about how God cares about our worship and a little bit about how social media um, impacts the way that we worship. Would you finish up today with us just talking a little bit about that and what we need to do to make sure that we maintain the wonder of our worship? Yeah. Um, you know, I think I think uh, just a couple ways I think social media can misdirect our worship. First, I think you know, social media drops the wonders of the world into our pockets. And I think that's wonderful. I think like some of my favorite social media accounts to follow are um, are ones you know like nature photographers and stuff like that. Who who like man, I I'm getting to see corners of the world yeah. I've never I would have never been able to see if it weren't for following these guys on social media. And it's wonderful. Again, like that's, that's a, another positive, a great, like we get to see in the little corners of the world and, and learn about peoples or cultures or, or parts of nature that we would have never seen otherwise. Um, but I think when the, when social media drops the wonders of the world into our pockets, I think it can become tempting to worship the world around us as, as you know, like trading worship of, of creator for worship of creation. And I think that's, that's can be exact, like in that very good thing of like, wow, we get to see this cool thing that we never would have gotten to see. We can start to kind of misprioritize things and worship the world around us, whether natural or otherwise, instead of the creator who, who formed those things. And then like, uh, likewise, the second thing, the way that I think social media can misdirect worship is that I, I think our relationship with social media sometimes makes us feel like we're heroes of our own stories. I mentioned this a few times throughout the book and I even said it earlier in our conversation. But I think um, it's really tempting to feel like you're the main character of your life. Um, 
and there's every like David Foster Wallace speaks to this pretty well, American novelist um, from the late 20th century, and uh, and it's just it's natural. Like nobody nobody is gonna fault you for thinking you're the main character of your life. It is after all your life, right? Like in in a very literal sense, um, like. I'm more likely to be the main character of my life than you are and vice versa. But at the same time, as Christians, especially, we need to recognize that we aren't even really the main characters of our own lives. And we're certainly not the main characters and shouldn't be treated as such of others' lives. Um, but because social media is such a sort of like implicitly narcissistic enterprise and that it it makes it feel like, especially if you create content on social media, makes it feel like everybody should be watching you. Um, it's easy for our worship to sort of be misdirected, not only outward, but inward. And we're like making idols of ourselves and making it feel like we're really more important than we are and kind of having um, main character syndrome. And so so I think those are a couple of ways social media and our relationship with the social internet can, can misdirect our worship. And I think to kind of reclaim it, it just requires a lot of, again, intentionality. Um, and we're not going to just, we're, we're more likely to fall into a wrong relationship with social media that misdirects our worship than we are to fall into a right relationship with social media that doesn't affect our worship. And so I think we have to recognize that sanctified effort is really important as we try to use social media as Christians, because otherwise it can't, it will not only affect our anxiety or discernment or humility, but ultimately I think it can taint our, our worship and our ability to worship well. And I mean, losing ourselves in worship of this transcendent sovereign God has a way of minimizing who we are and re reorienting, reorienting our purpose, reorienting our, our understanding of who the world is. So by pulling our nose out of whether it be our phones or our video games or whatever it is, I'm getting caught lost in a sense of all of this God and appreciation of the, the, the smallness of who we are has a way of reminding us that the world's not really all about us. Chris, thank you so much for being with us today. Uh, where can folks go to learn more about you? Tell me about this uh, this um, site that you host for uh, Moody. Oh, yeah. So I run this site called Bible to Life, which is just a bunch of resources actually created to help people who are Googling for various answers to faith questions and things like that and in hopes of maybe capturing their attention rather than some other less trustworthy sites that may catch their attention. So that's where I spend a lot of my working days, kind of working to build up that website. I also write regularly at my newsletter, which is termsofservice.social. And I'm on Twitter is my main place where I connect with folks I don't know, uh, which is Chris Martin 17. I'm not particularly active there, but if you reach out there, I will probably see it at some point. So good deal. Chris Martin, thank you so much for being with us. I would remind you his book, um, is the wolf in their pockets. Uh, his other book is Terms of Service. You can find those at Amazon or uh, wherever uh, good books are sold, but uh, mostly you'll find those online. But thank you so much for being with us. And thank you for being with us on this episode of the Ordinary Christian Podcast. If you have enjoyed it, we would encourage you to use those social media channels, right? And uh, help us get that word out. Leave us a good review. If you have a good one, if you have a bad one, we'd appreciate if you keep it yourself. Otherwise, we will um, check with you sometime soon on the Ordinary Christian Podcast. The next episode uh, will be up in about a week with uh, David Sachs, and we'll talk about the value of analog life. Thank you so much for being with us on this episode. Have a great week. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Ordinary Christian Podcast. I hope that you will use the information in this podcast to encourage you to love Jesus in the ordinary aspects of your daily life. Jesus surrounded himself with very ordinary people who made a difference in the world because of their Savior. You can make a difference too. If you would like to read more of my writings or find other podcasts, you can find information about me on my website at www.craigthompson.org. For information about Malvern Hill Baptist Church and sermons from our church, you can go to our website at www.malvernhill.org. Until next time, use the ordinary margins of your life to make an extraordinary difference in the world around you.